This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 304. This podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the ultimate daily all-in-one health drink with 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that makes it easier for you to get comprehensive nutrition without the need for multiple pills, powders, or complex routines. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA and claim a special offer of 20 free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with UK runner Nick Butter, who became the first person in history to run a marathon in every country on earth. Plus, in the quick tip segment, and he shares tips on running in cold weather. And of course, you can level up in your training with Academy membership and coaching. You can find out more when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So Trevor, you just came back from San Antonio, Texas, where you ran the Rock and Roll Half Marathon. Uh, how was that experience? Hey, it was pretty fun, actually. Uh, I think it was my 25th or 26th half marathon. And when we go down to San Antonio, we stay at the Drury Hotel. The Drury has been a longtime sponsor of the podcast. And their San Antonio location is right on the Riverwalk. It's one of my favorite locations that, that they have. And they have like over 150. My parents actually flew down there and my brother and we all met up. So yeah, I ran the half in about two hours and nine minutes. And we had a MTA meetup before the race at a Mexican restaurant. So big thanks to David and Ginny from Austin, Texas. Elena and Trella from Galveston, Coach Athena and her husband Joey from San Antonio, and also Joe Bailey from Wisconsin, and my dad, Sheldon Spencer, was also there. The only bad thing about it is I lost my voice, so it was hard to talk at the meetup and the next day during the race and uh, a couple following days. When my family gets together, we usually have a big gab fest, but my voice was gone. Well, you had to do more listening than talking this time. Yeah, that's what you tell me to do, isn't it? So my race was on December 8th. There are some other races also on the same day, the Memphis Marathon, um, CIM, California International Marathon, also the Honolulu Marathon. Yeah, people getting in a lot of uh, year-end races, so very exciting. We have some shout-outs we'd like to give. We'd like to say congratulations to Karima, who ran a 12-minute PR at CIM. She finished with a time of three hours and one minute, and she's been working with MTA coach Steven for a long time and just experiencing great results and working hard. We'd also like to say congratulations to Emily in the Academy. She ran her first 50-mile race. It was in Northern California. It was very wet and cold. Some of the conditions she described sounded pretty grueling, um, but she stayed strong and had a great time. And she also works in, with an MTA coach, Coach Chris. So big congrats on finishing that huge challenge. We also heard from someone named Angie, and of course, I'm a little biased to that name, but she says, hello, Angie and Trevor. I just finished my first marathon in Seattle on December 1st, and I truly believe I would not have been as mentally and physically prepared without your help. I've been an off-again, on-again runner since my Army days over 20 years ago. I started running consistently in 2014 after losing over 50 pounds. I ran my first half in 2015, but didn't run my second one until last year. Both left me depleted, believing I wasn't cut out for anything longer than a 10K. After those three tough years, which included a divorce, a move across the country, and again, weight gain, I wrote down on January 1st, 2019, that I would run a marathon before the year was out. I found your content, and it changed the way I trained and fueled, which changed the course of my year and changed my life when I crossed the finish line. I can't thank you enough for all you share with the running community. She says many thanks, and that comes from Angie, and she's age 44 and finished in five hours and 32 minutes. Well, congratulations, Angie, on finishing your first marathon, proving to yourself that you could do it. In spite of everything you've been going through, you dug deep and you crossed the finish line. So massive congrats and keep up the great work. That's right. And we'd like to say congratulations to Rahul. He says, I finished my first marathon in gorgeous Osaka with a time of four hours and 39 minutes. 
I'm overwhelmed now with feelings of accomplishment and gratitude. Thanks, Angie and Trevor, for crossing my path at the right time. I started listening to the podcast while slogging through long runs in the heat and humidity of a Hong Kong summer. Through marathon training, I developed the fitness and mindset of a marathoner. I got stronger in body and mind and made better food and lifestyle choices. I'm looking forward to continuing my running journey after I recover. Love it. Thank you for that nice note, Rahul. And congrats on running your first marathon. And it's just cool to hear how, you know, well, both of the shout outs you just read, these people have really had to become a new and better version of themselves in order to get across the finish line successfully. And that's what's so beautiful about the marathon. It's a beautiful struggle, right? Yeah, that's right. It's about so much more than crossing the finish line. It's definitely about the journey. And this note comes from Joan. She says, Hi, Angie and Trevor. After six months of listening, I finally get to write you a proud message of my own. I ran my first marathon in Abu Dhabi, where I grew up, with a time of 4 hours, 14 minutes, and 17 seconds. The race was truly an emotional experience with really cool athletes running it. If anyone is interested in running the Abu Dhabi Marathon next year, it's a great course to get a personal best as it's 95% flat. During the marathon, I was remembering what you said in a few podcasts. I wrote, you can do hard things on my arm, and I did a body scan assessment when things got hard. I would think, hmm, what doesn't hurt? What am I grateful for right now? Trevor, you remind me that being a runner is a personal journey and balance is key. Thanks so much again and much love from the desert. And that comes from Joan. Well, thank you, Joan, for being a listener and congrats on conquering your first marathon. Of course, it's not lost on us how cool it is to have a listener in the United Arab Emirates. So yeah, shout out to all of our listeners who are doing this in the desert. And this note comes from Drew in the Academy. He says, I wanted to write a brief follow-up to this weekend's race as a thank you to MTA and my MTA coach, Jennifer. A year ago, I had been forced to defer my CIM registration to 2019 due to an ankle injury that I got playing soccer. It had healed by September, but I had jumped back into running and then developed another injury in the same ankle. During that time, my wife had become pregnant as planned, and we decided to purchase our first home. This entire time, I was unable to run, and I had no outlet for my anxiety. I was drinking a lot to manage stress and just felt unhealthy. I started working with Coach Jen in July of this year and within a few months was able to run again with a goal of completing CIM. As I was able to get back into shape, I slowly shifted my goal from just finishing to a four-hour time and then set a more aggressive goal of 3.30. I'm happy to say I was able to achieve my goal with a time of 3 hours, 29 minutes, and 14 seconds and felt strong through the whole race. I can't be more thankful to the MTA community and Coach Jen for getting me across the finish line and helping me set a great example for my daughter during her first year of life. Now time to focus on next year to see how close I can get to a BQ. Thanks for the nice note, Drew. Congrats on all your success. And here is to an awesome next year for you and for everyone listening. We're so happy to be on this running journey with all of you listening, no matter where you're at, if you're training for your first race or if you're an old pro at this. We know you guys are going to love this episode. Our guest, Nick Butter, he's a 30-year-old ultra runner from Dorset in the UK. He's the first person in history to run a marathon in every country of the world. That's 196 countries. And he finished this amazing accomplishment on November 10th, 2019, so not that long ago at the time of this recording. And he has been so busy just doing media for this, and he's also got some book deals in the works. It was hard to arrange this, but we were able to do it, and Nick is a great guy. And I was especially interested in this because not only is it historic, it's a world first as far as records go. I just find you know the fact that he was in every country of the world very interesting You know, as a guy that likes to travel and a guy that likes to study geography. Yeah, it's a huge accomplishment, and just as we talk to him, you could just tell, like, even the things he was telling us were just like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we cover a lot of stuff. But just to give you an idea of what it took for him to pull this off, and you're going to hear this come up in the interview, so a little context. He ran 196 marathons in 196 countries, 455 plane rides, 18 train rides, 50 buses, 290-plus taxis. This whole adventure was 100% carbon offset. They had to pay 60 bribes. There were five broken down cars, one dog bite, two muggings, one time being hit by a car, one broken elbow, 22 marathons ran on food poisoning, four marathons with a kidney infection, one tooth infection, 229 malaria tablets, 280 different beds, 156 hotels, 11 hostels, 59 guest families, 29 guest houses, 599 plus airports, four yurts, 88 schools visited, 
140 news channels, and the list goes on and on. So I think the logistics is more impressive than actually running that many marathons, you know? Angie, you're always getting stressed out about logistics and getting to the starting line. So how would you like to take this on? (laughs) No, this would not be an adventure for me. (laughs) So here is our interview with Nick Butter. Right, we're on the podcast now with Nick Butter, the first person in history to run a marathon in every country of the world. Let's go one by one through each country, right? <laughs> That'll take forever. <laughs> Just kidding. Nick, how you doing today? Oh, yeah, I'm good, man. It's, uh, it's weird to be back on home soil and not running every couple of days, which um, is good, but I also miss it, weirdly. It's been three weeks since I finished, and now I'm just so, so busy with media and everything else. It's, it, I haven't really, you know, my feet haven't touched the ground yet, so I very much feel like I'm still away. <laughs> We're excited that your amazing accomplishment has gotten and is getting a lot of attention from the media. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm so pleased with it. And I think when you do this kind of stuff and because the whole trip was to raise this this money for for prostate cancer UK and and to to share the awareness, if we hadn't had social media, the trip wouldn't have even been thought up in the first place because it wouldn't have had any traction to raise any awareness or anything like that. So, I'm so grateful for the media and I wouldn't have it any other way, but I had no idea how crazy it was going to be you know, once I crossed the finish line and and I've literally not stopped. So, um, and hopefully I won't stop for a long time, you know, and hopefully I'll just keep, keep doing it. But um, I would like to have some sleep soon. <laughs> but um, other than that, it's been brilliant. Sounds like the next few months will be a marathon of different sorts as you uh, deal yeah. with writing and continued interviews and things like that. Take us back to how you became a distance runner. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering like how you got into this crazy thing of, of long distance running. Yeah. I suppose for me, like marathon distance is uh, kind of my middle distance because I'm, I'm much better at going slowly for longer and running, you know, my kind of my favorite distance is probably 120 150 miles um but anything above that i'm all i always do better in races like marathons i'm relatively slow um not very slow but relatively for somebody that's known for running marathons and so i guess i got into running because i was trying to actually see friends where i live so back when i was very young i was in the um, under 19 snow sports england team i was a skier um and nothing to do with running at all and i just ran to to keep fit and i did lots and lots of running in school and i was always the kid that loved cross-country events and all the other kids would would hate it and i always (laughs) look forward to it um but you know i was i loved it because i loved being outside i grew up in the countryside um, in the middle of nowhere and so i'd spent a lot of my youth uh cycling to my friends you know either to go to school which was like 10 11 miles away or going to see my friends which were the same distance and so kind of endurance was definitely there but without really meaning to and then after the skiing career kind of stopped and I got a real job I used running as I think a lot of people do as a bit of therapy um, to try and escape from the mundane and sitting behind a desk and go out there and and enjoy myself for a little bit and be in my own head Um, and then of course the next step is that you begin to get better and compete with yourself and then compete against other people and then run with run with people that you you know from running and then all of a sudden you're a runner without really meaning to be and then I I guess the next step up from that for me was being kind of spotted by a few sponsors and I was ending up turning down opportunities to go and run in some amazing places around the world because I was working Um, I worked in banking and finance and it was very intense and you know I couldn't uh, I couldn't get away and so I was thinking hang on a minute this isn't right what am I doing I'm turning down these opportunities to do something I love in amazing places I've never been to with people that I've been friendly with for ages like this isn't right and so it took me a number of years but I eventually made the jump to go and try and be a runner and and say goodbye to earning any money and just enjoy it um (laughs) And now, you know, years down the line, eight years later or something, I've now finished running around the world and it's very much a career I'm not focused on making money out of, but obviously you need to make enough money to be able to live. And so fortunately, I'm able to make enough money to put kind of food and drink in me and then and then go and run again. So it's uh, it's been a long journey and I wasn't setting out to be a runner, but I just love it. And you know, I, I ran for the first time since coming back uh, a couple of days ago. And it was absolutely amazing just to get out there and uh, and be under the. I ran at night as well because often I, when I was away on the on the trip, I, I wasn't able to run at night 
because of safety. Sure. And so running at night when it was a little bit cold and having my hats and my gloves on, which I haven't done for, it, for basically a year because I hadn't had any snow on the trip for, for about 12 months. And so it was just brilliant. And I was literally like smiling away the whole time. Nobody could see me, obviously, but I was so happy. <laughs> um, and I guess that's I guess a lot of your um, your listeners will, will kind of relate to that. It's just a, a brilliant thing. As soon as you're in that mode where you know you can run and it's not about feeling tired and you just do it for enjoyment, it's it's amazing. So what gave you the idea to run a marathon in every country? So I guess it was born out of... I guess years and years ago when I was younger, I know that the conversation came up and it was very much, uh, wouldn't it be great if this, if I could do this one day? And obviously it was dismissed with, a, oh yeah, well, that's a ridiculous idea. Let's just, <laughs> you know, that would, that would be a dream. And then I guess all of my life, I describe it as being pushed towards a cliff edge of, of adventure and doing this thing that I love. And I've met all of these people that have slowly given me a little bit of a shove towards that edge. And then meeting Kevin so Kevin Weber was my um, huge inspiration and a couple of other people along the way, a guy called Jeff Smith, too. They were in positions that um, Kev was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer and, and given two years to live. Mm. And so what he taught me was and I feel incredibly lucky because I still don't fully understand it. But I believe I am closer than most is that I'm now living my life really being appreciative of everything else that's going on around me. Um, and, and actually going to bed at night and being, but being pleased with what I've done in the day. And I met Kevin, there was this real disparity between how happy he was and what he was telling me, you know, he was smiling and being super happy. And I was thinking, well, you're telling me you're going to die in two years. How are you happy? And it was this realization that he is now valuing every single day he has, and he's kind of being reborn again. And I've genuinely lived like that ever since meeting him. And this trip was to raise some money for Prostate Cancer UK, but it was also to to live by what I learned from Kevin and actually go out and do what I love. And so it was a no-brainer to go and do something, travel around the world, do something nobody's ever done before. It needed to be big enough to raise some awareness because, you know, going and running, running a marathon, one marathon somewhere wouldn't have done that. And then going out and, and uh, setting the, ro- the, the world record. So there's all sorts of avenues there, but it was ultimately because Kev re- made me realize how precious life is. So you mentioned studying the world record. Do you know like um, what the record was previously? How many countries someone had run in? Yeah, so there was no official record. Um, even people that have done lots of marathons all over the place, there was no official record on file. The, the closest mm-hmm. that I know of um, as an official record was a guy who did Europe. He did 44 marathons in the 44 European countries in 44 days. He's a really lovely bloke. He was doing it for charity too. And other than that, there was no kind of, kind of worldwide thing. And okay. so it was a perfect opportunity. Yeah. So putting the running aside for a second, I'm just thinking about the logistics of this. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing. You you did all the countries in, is it two years? Yeah, so 674 days. So that's 22 months, basically, yeah. Wow. So did you have a team that helped you coordinate? I'm, I'm sure all the t- red tape, you know, the visas, the travel, just, you know, finding safe places to run. Kind of walk us through what that was like. So this is this is what I find really hard. And as you guys probably know, I've got this big speaking tour coming up next year, which is basically a year of, of touring around the world with um, with talking about what I've done and the lessons I've learned, etc. And it is so hard to talk about because by far, um, and I mean by a million miles, the logistics was the hardest part of the whole trip. Yes. Because, you know, obviously you're setting a world record, so you don't want to do it too slowly. Um, you know, because I could have taken 10 years and I would have still got the record because it hadn't been done before. But also I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it I wanted to make it a record that was going to be tough to beat and I wanted it to be in quick succession so it would be hard physically for me too. But if I go back five years ago when we created this idea, um, it then took two years just to get to the start line on January the 6th, um, 2018, when I left the UK to fly to country number one, which was Canada. And so that whole two years feels like an absolute lifetime ago. It really does. Um, but I remember the conversations that I've had with my parents during that time, with my friends, with my family. I had a nutritionist, a performance manager, a coach um security you, you name it we brought loads and loads of people on board lots of them were volunteers and we created this big team to try and understand um how we were going to do this 
and then ultimately skip forward all the way from that beginning phase of thinking about doing it to finishing it you know that team had dwindled away there had been lots of people that had got on with the rest of their lives because it's you know three or four years overall from from dreaming it up to finishing it right and so people there's people that I started with I've had three different assistants because they've gone and either got married or had kids or moved away or done all sorts of stuff and so I've then ended up with a team at the end that I didn't start with at the beginning and so that gives you an idea of how tough the logistics were and so some of the stats I guess which stand out the we did 455 flights um, and to put that into perspective when we planned the trip we were expecting to do 220 so that gives you an idea of how it didn't go to plan at all (laughs) Um, and so we had I think it was 55 55 flights cancel and they were cancellations made more or less on the day of the flight and so there was lots of yeah lots of logistics Um, and when you're running in three you know three marathons in three different countries every week for nearly 100 weeks it's very tough to stay in a positive mindset when I'm having a phone call telling me that, you know, I have to get out of bed at midnight or one in the morning and go to the airport and run the same day on a day that I wasn't expecting to run at all. You know, and when you're when you've already done 50, 60, 100, 150 marathons, you're feeling like this is just ridiculous now. Um, and if I if I if you ask me, do you think you'll finish this trip? If you asked me that two months ago when I was in the last three or four weeks of the trip, I would have said 95% no. Wow. Because, and that's genuine. Uh, and I hate to even say that, but it was the reality. We, we went through nearly a million pounds of our own money. And we then got to a point where I was having a phone call from my parents and my dad. And my dad was a brilliant support for me. He was, uh, he was in charge of booking all of my flights um, and making sure that I was going to get to every country and kind of organizing some of the log- logistics with support from lots of other people. And uh, he called me and said, look, son, we're really up against it. We don't think you're going to make Athens. We don't think you're going you're to reach the finish line because you've been, you've been refused your visa for Yemen. You've, ref- you've been refused your visa for Iran. We can't get you to this place on time. It means running back to back to back marathons for the last couple of weeks. And I was like, well, I just got angry, if I'm honest. I just got angry. I was like, how can we be in this position where we planned it for two years and we're now literally weeks away from the end of a, of a nearly 100-week trip and you're telling me we can't do it? And it was horrible because it was almost worse to be in that position than ever starting it in the first place, if that makes yes, sense. Yes. And that's a very privileged thing to be able to say, and it's probably quite a spoilt thing to say, but I, was really, I really felt angry. I was like, how can we be in this position? And <laughs> miraculously through, I mean, I could tell you all the stories, but it would take weeks. Um, miraculously, those last, those last three weeks of the journey were, and the people that are close to me and close to the trip know how unlikely that was to pull off um, because there was, you know, I did, I ran in Yemen and then Syria back to back within a, within 30 hours, you know, and these are countries that you have to fly to eight different countries just to get access to. And yeah, all sorts of stuff. There was roadblocks. There was lots of protests in Beirut on my way into Syria. And uh, yeah, and then all sorts of stuff that happens at borders. And they were just two countries out of the 196. So yeah, you get the idea. It's, it was, uh, it was really, really tough. So let's uh, maybe dive into one or two of those countries. Which country would you say was the toughest logistically to get into and to run? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, there's uh, many for many reasons. You know, lots of people say to me, oh, well, North Korea must have been tough to get into. Um, and what about Mogadishu, where they've obviously got car bombs going off all the time in Somalia? North Korea, you, you actually ran the Pyongyang Marathon with a tour group, right? Absolutely. And that is exactly why North Korea wasn't one of the most difficult ones. Um, Because at the beginning, we had a list of about 15 to 20 countries. And they were the the countries that we called the the trouble countries, the ones that we were going to have trouble in, whether it was going to be access or security when in when in the country. And we went through with security people and tour agencies and you name it. Um, and North Korea was one we very quickly ticked off the list. I know a guy who um, works very closely with Koryo Tours, who does the, the principal tour company that takes people over to Pyongyang every April to run the, the official Pyongyang Marathon. And it's pretty much one of the only ways you can access the country. And again, I was just very fortunate that I happened to be born British and therefore I have less problem getting there. I mean, if you guys, it's going to be a little bit more tough. Yeah, there, there were um, zero Americans that ran the Pyongyang Marathon. Yeah, that gives you exactly. Yeah, you, you know the position. Um, and, and that happens in lots of other places around the world. And so to answer your question, particularly the toughest countries were Iran, Yemen, Syria, and I suppose Israel. 
um, because the obviously the, the thing with with Israel is that if you go to Israel, lots of other countries in the world are then dubious about why you've been to Israel, hmm. Syria for one. Um, and so that one we had to leave quite till the last minute. But that was then also quite stressful because it was the penultimate country in Iran. But had there been any issues, I could have turned up in Greece, which was my last country. And they said, well, you've been to Israel. Sorry, go home. And that was a real worry all the way through. But, you know, that was fine. Just to give you an example of Syria, so obviously Syria is pretty war-torn and uh, I wasn't actually aware of how complicated the, the political situation is there. Um, I knew it was very complicated, but I had no idea how, um, how long and how many nations are involved in the, in, the, in the conflict. And so understanding that now, having been there and spoken to people and, and done my research a bit more, it is an absolute miracle that I managed to get in and out safely. I had to go over, you can't fly there easily, so um, I went over the border from, uh, from Lebanon Wow. Uh, in Beirut. But at the time, you may remember a few weeks ago, there were huge protests. Um, and just a classic example of the stuff that happens on the trip. And I get a phone call from my dad again. And he said, you're supposed to be flying into Lebanon tomorrow to go to Syria. And I was like, yes, I know. I'm getting my bags ready. <laughs> and he said, well, there's been three people killed on that road that Ooh. you're going to be driving down. Uh, and I was like, hmm, okay. And I said, so what happened? And basically, it was just Syrians shooting towards the Lebanese border and they were just indiscriminately shooting random people and so it was like hmm you know this is this is not easy now and even just getting from the from the sits from the center of Beirut all the way through to the border of Syria you can't really a approach the border in a Lebanese vehicle you must approach in a Syrian vehicle so we had to do a vehicle swap halfway through and that vehicle swap was in the middle of a huge flaming blockade because there were loads of protests on and so there's plenty of people with guns and there was a huge tire wall almost as high as a building um which, which was just on fire and there was me just hopping out the car and chucking my bags into another vehicle trying not to breathe <laughs> exactly yeah exactly trying not to breathe and trying not to get like get shot trying not to get spotted by anybody um and then also the drivers that i had spoke no english and so there was so much worry um about what was going on and i didn't know if i was getting into the right car or if i was going to be kidnapped or all this stuff and so just getting to the country was difficult and to give you another little example yemen uh was another tough one uh, again because i would had my visas refused and we finally found a company that would get me some access if i went through the border via oman so i had to go overland again which is never nice because you have to go through many checkpoints mm. um and a, a many many hours driving from oman to to the border of yemen and i got to the border and was very nervous i was physically shaking because this was at two in the morning or something like that midnight anyway very dark lots of people with big semi-automatic weapons ak-47s and big military uniforms and to my horror my driver which i didn't realize at the time was trying to smug smuggle in like con counterfeit goods oh, in no. and literally these items were like all over the car and i just thought it was just like his car and it was just junk but it was boxes and boxes of like knockoff goods hmm. um and obviously he was questioned there were lots of loud voices and when you go to yemen you know the british government doesn't have to come and get you it's one of the countries they say if you go there then you're on your own mate good luck um, <laughs> Wow. And exactly. And so I'm in this situation thinking I'm like six countries from the end. I've been I've spent all my money. We've spent five years doing this whole trip. And I'm now at a border and some guy is trying to smuggle in goods. Am I going to be arrested and locked up? And I'm never going to finish this. And that's just again, that's just a couple of countries. You know, it's not that hard everywhere, but it is actually quite difficult to juggle things like passports and so i got through uh, the equivalent of, of, uh, of 10 passports and on the trip and that meant juggling backwards and forwards so when i was in africa doing two or three months in africa my passports were back in the uk being sent to various embassies getting ready for my next leg of africa and so when they were being done i would go to europe for a bit do a few european countries that didn't need a visa and then go back to africa with a new passport and then do that three times um and so even even that stuff I'm, honestly the logistics are so complicated and had, had i known at the beginning there was no way i would have started it because you just you look at it and think it's just so difficult i mean if you 
want to take 20 years to do it, then fine. But even so, you know, you're going to have problems with with access. And, you know, I'm turning up at border post with a passport. This happened a few times where there was no physical pages left to stamp in my passport. And they said, well, you're going to have to pay a fine. And I, I, I was paid the equivalent of like $800, $900 just because I didn't have a passport page free in my passport. Um, And we we couldn't do anything about it. And you multiply that up by a few countries and it starts to get even more expensive than it was. So, yeah, that's an idea of uh, the logistic troubles. I think your record is safe for years and years to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So So I saw a long list of your experiences that you posted maybe on social media somewhere and talked about how many days that you had to run after having food poisoning, how many times you were mugged, how many times you were chased by a dog. Can you go through some of that with us? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, okay. So one of the toughest marathons to run was in Bangladesh, actually, um, because that was after 22 marathons with food poisoning. Um, and I know that's, I mean, even just getting out of bed with food poisoning isn't enjoyable, let alone running in 40 degrees, 40, 50 degrees in, in Bangladesh. And I, uh, I had lots of lovely people with me and I felt terrible because I was, I was literally throwing up more or less every half a mile. Um, and then of course the knock on effect of, and the reality of this kind of trip is that you have to then stop running after you've finished pack your bags, get on a plane and do it again. And I tell you what, being on a plane, you know, forget about the running, but being on a plane with food poisoning isn't enjoyable either because you're constantly waiting outside the bathroom and just kind of hoping that nothing terrible happens. Um, And so that's, yeah, so we had 22, 22 marathons with food poisoning. I had three marathons with a kidney infection. And believe me, if Uh you've ever had a kidney infection, it feels like you're being punched in the back, like every step. So that was horrible. And again, running in heat is, is just, it's just terrible. I can't tell you how many marathons I've finished where I had blood in my in my urine because I was just so dehydrated because of food poisoning and all this sort of stuff that I couldn't I couldn't physically take in enough fluids because they were coming straight out of me. So, so that wasn't very nice. Um, yeah, I got attacked and bitten by a dog um, up in Tunisia, North Africa, which was relatively early on. It was one of my first phases of Africa, and it did freaked me out a little bit because i'd been chased by dogs many many times sure. i mean in certain parts of the world um, especially in the south pacific the pacific ocean is is known for particularly aggressive dogs and i i had a really tough experience there where i had to abandon a few a few runs and actually turn around and come back and run around like the car park in uh, i think it was micronesia or, or the marshall islands one of those I had to run 335 laps of a car park oh, no. just to avoid dogs. I know. And bearing in mind, this country is so, is so, so small. You hardly have any space. But I got bitten by a dog in Tunisia. And that meant I then had to go and find some rabies shots um, at a short notice because obviously you don't want to have rabies because you die. <laughs> um, and then uh, I realized that the places I was going to following that bite they didn't have any of the vaccines i needed they didn't have the rabies shots available and so we had to then rejig the whole trip to go to countries that would have the vaccine which was just a real pain in the neck (laughs) and so and a pain in my leg literally um but running i I was bitten uh, i was bitten on my left bum cheek really and it was a a, i was on a beach and they just these dogs just i was running with a very good friend of mine andy who came out and ran 19 marathons in total just kind of every now and then when he could find a weekend off um but we we were together and this dog just came well five dogs actually but this one particular dog just came up and took a chunk out of my leg we were on mile i think it was mile 22 or 24 of the run um and so we had a few more miles to go and i was just a nice trail of blood like pouring out of my my leg as we got back but it's those kind of things it's it's the the rule was if you start a marathon you have to finish it because otherwise you're going to have to come back and do it again and so yeah i i I finished every single one that i started um even if i do have to uh, run around a car park (laughs) you're probably thinking if i have to crawl i'm going to finish because it took so much effort to get here (laughs) yeah absolutely and that's a very good point actually because i got into a routine of if i was to get to 16 miles i knew i could crawl 10 miles if i absolutely had to you know even if it took me all day, I would always leave enough time that if something went wrong, I would I could finish by like limping or hopping or whatever it would take. And I've done marathons before with broken bones and I know what that's like. So it was kind of a, you know, leave at least 10 hours just in case. Um, and luckily it didn't take that long. And sometimes I didn't actually have 10 hours in a country and that was quite stressful. Um, yeah, what were the other stats? Um, um, getting mugged. Oh, yeah, getting mugged. Yeah, that little thing. <laughs> um, one of, yeah, so the, the tough one was um, in Nigeria, uh, Lagos. 
it was after the run and i was i don't know if you've ever been to lagos market but uh, i mean i have no no problem with nigeria in, in general but the lagos market is is awful it is I, I can't really describe it it's just rubble and mud and lots of kind of violence and it, you know on the face of it you think actually it's a very pretty place great for photos but from my experience anyway is kind of people are out to look after themselves and only themselves and so you know muggings were were, were going to happen and yeah there was lots of guns and knives and shoving and kicking on the floor oh, and my. not very pleasant and then what was actually very scary is i noticed that we were, there were two policemen i mean we're in nigeria so they're not as official as they would look in the states and i looked over and noticed they were police they had the guns on them and they literally did nothing they were wow. just there hmm. they were just there to make sure i didn't die basically anything else went and so that was quite scary because you know all the thoughts go through my head like yeah fine this is happening but just don't hurt my legs like make sure i can still run <laughs> you know all this sort of stuff um and so that wasn't very nice and it did scare me um but i was i was cornered in this it's like a maze a the biggest possible maze you can imagine and then it's even bigger than that were you by yourself and I wasn't by myself. I had so there was actually a, a relatively senior political figure that I was with, but he was a, a it was it was senior in the sense that he'd been in the industry a long time, but he was relatively young for a politician. He and a couple of runners were with me, um, and we were actually linked arm in arm when it happened. Um, that's how scary the place is. We walked along arm in arm just to try and uh, try and keep me as safe as we could. And I, I knew that it was a, a potential risk, but. Um, and then eventually it happened but um, they they managed to kind of shield me from the worst and of the damage um but there was lots wow. of uh yeah it was, it was scary and i think well without them i would have i would have lost everything i don't know I, I don't know what else would have happened but i can tell you i probably wouldn't have been in this state to be able to run again so i would have been shaken up from that so bad yeah i was i was i was really shaken up what do they take so eventually they just took a lot of money um so basically any of the money that we had on us i had my camera with me and they wanted the camera and i was like well okay but hey they have no idea how much it's worth and it was worth i don't know in dollars probably 12 or 13 thousand dollars um as an expensive camera because obviously you know i travel with this stuff because this is like a once in a lifetime trip and i needed to make sure i had all my best gear yes Um, document it yeah exactly to document it for the documentary for photo books and all sorts of stuff and and i thought i don't really want to give this this camera to these guys but we ultimately ended up bargaining with them um in the way you can bargain with a mugger which isn't particularly (laughs) normal um and we ended up giving them all the money that we had which was a lot less than the value of the camera so um (laughs) and and they wanted money anyway so it was kind of a (laughs) win-win oh my goodness (laughs) the only time you describe a mugging as a win-win i guess is if you escape with your life and your camera right (laughs) yeah exactly that exactly that yeah there's to be honest the the horrendous moments on the trip they were they stand out and obviously you remember them but i'm a big advocate in trying to bring forward to the front of my mind all of the other the great stuff because i can't tell you how it's it's very difficult to describe i feel like i've seen the world that where nobody else has i feel like i've really understood that people make what we are and i've been so honored to be uh, welcomed by people and you know i've for example i was running on a beach in amman um and i just happened to be in the last five or ten kilometers of my run and i just ran up against this guy who was running as well and i said hi how are you and he was doing a few kilometers and then an hour or so later i was sitting around his table in his home after having a shower at his house um and his wife cooked me dinner i met his son who was a runner and he just said yeah come back and i'll give you a lift back to the hotel later and it was the most you know amazing Mm. experience and that happened over and over and over and over again so yeah people despite all the bad stuff the people made made the trip amazing I'm sure you met all kinds of amazing people and ran in so many beautiful places. Do you think you can maybe sketch for us some of the most beautiful running routes that you took? Oh, yeah. No car parks. <laughs> yeah, no car parks allowed. Um, so I suppose to paint the picture, the overall trip for me, is if you look at a map, I started in, in North America, went all the way down through the Americas, and then went over to Africa, and then a Europe, Asia, Oceania, the Pacific Islands. So I went from left to right. 
And the whole trip was kind of bookended with islands. So there was the Pacific Islands in the final few months and there was the Caribbean in the middle of the first month. And so I started and finished with islands, which meant basically running next to the ocean the whole time. And I can't tell you, apart from the car park, um, I can't <laughs> tell you how um, how special it was to run. And I love, I, I grew up near the sea and I love being by the ocean. I, I remember writing a little piece in my diary early on and it was about, uh, just just running next to the to the ocean and it almost being my friend because obviously I travel on my own yes. and so it felt so homely to be next to an ocean that was obviously connected to the rest of the world um, and so lots of the Caribbean islands were beautiful um, running in Guatemala around uh, this beautiful erupting volcano running through Honduras where there was just fields and fields of uh, of watermelon farms um, Nepal was special it was very wet. It was monsoon season when I was in Nepal and there was loads of leeches and it was obviously very hilly and muddy. Um, but it was, again, absolutely stunning. Yeah. In Bolivia, La Paz, um, all the little tin sheds that reflected the light in the in the early morning sun. Um, and, I, you know, running up to these horrendously steep hills. I've been to La Paz. That's like 12,000 12, feet elevation, isn't it? And yeah, of course, you've got a bit of altitude there, too. Yeah. So I was <laughs> I ran it. I think it was I ran at 14,000 feet um, yeah. just outside of La Paz and then came back into La Paz at 12,000. Yeah, so it, was, um, it wasn't it was easy. Um, I remember because I had about five hours from arriving to when I started running. And so there was no time to adjust to the climate or the altitude. Wow. Um, and so I was very, very dizzy during most of the run. But it was beautiful, you know. Um, yeah, that one doesn't even make the top 10 of difficult. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> it doesn't even make the top 10. That's awesome. As far as like physically challenging, what would be the, the top two or top three? Top two or top three. So I mentioned Bangladesh. That was just because I was ill. And I think I think all of them were difficult because I was ill or I'd done lots on the bounce. Um, there was a couple where I'd had some kind of minor injuries. I was very, very fortunate not to have any bigger injuries. It was more luck than judgment, I'll tell you that. But <laughs> it was, um, I, I had a few places where I was running in a lot of snow. So like Ukraine and um, kind of that part of the world in winter, Russia. I, I only ever ran with road shoes. Um, so running up in the mud in the pool or running in snow, I was slipping all over the place and, um, I did, I think it was, um, oh, I can't remember where it was, Bulgaria or Bucharest, maybe it was Romania, Bucharest, I think. And I, I did have a, a very, very sore, I had, I tore some tendons in my Achilles and I had a, I had a while to run with, with very much like pain in my feet. One of the toughest actually was in Q8, um, and running in the Middle East. Um, but the average temperature, this is what blows my mind a little bit. I look back, the average temperature I had running through the African continent, so 54 countries, was 44 degrees. Wow. Hmm. That's like 110 Fahrenheit. I think a bit more, isn't it? 100 and... Yeah, 110. Yeah, something like that. That gives you an idea of how hot it was. The heat, the heat and the weather did play a big part in my life for those two years because I, um, I couldn't escape the heat and I'd always have to, you know, I'd arrive at midnight from a flight and I wouldn't be able to have a lion because the sun would be up at six. And so I'd have to get the majority of the run in and have maybe three hours under my belt and, and actually start running it like three hours after arriving in a country at three in the morning. Um, and obviously arriving into a country that you've never been to before, you don't know how safe it is at night where you can't see everything. Um, and being able to navigate yourself as well. It's its not easy. I'm actually quite proud of that point because, you know, the amount of times you think you get out of bed in the morning and go, oh, I really just want another 20 minutes or another half an hour. <laughs> but I knew that every 20 minutes I had in bed in the morning, I'd have to run in heat in the afternoon. So <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm not doing that. I'm getting up early. Um, I learned my lesson after a few. Africa was by far the toughest continent because obviously the the wealth and the prosperity in, in Africa is is, is lower um, there was less food available. My nutrition suffered, um, and the heat was was blazing hot. What percentage of the countries did you do an actual organized race? Yeah, an organized race. So I suppose there's two ways of looking at this. There's the pre-arranged marathons, um, as in like the New York or Boston or you know the, the big races in the world. Those ones that are kind of fixed and set in stone. But then there's also the times when I've arrived in countries, and I would say this happened about. 60% of the time where races were organized for me. Oh, so wow. they were, you know, they knew I was coming and they said, yeah, we'll organize this. And sometimes I'd have 10 people. Sometimes I'd have like a thousand. Um, and that was really special. And I can't tell you the amount of times I had so many lovely surprises from these people that were waiting to see me. And they were, 
like nervous to, to run with me if they were if they were young and, and just excited mm. um which is ridiculous because i'm just another person but at the time <laughs> they were like oh this guy is coming and we're gonna run and i'd have you know people the some of the, the i ran with some presidents i ran with british ambassadors and occasionally i'd have like medals with my face on it because they'd made these medals <laughs> and so i know that's, that's slightly that's awesome. weird but also quite nice um the, the experience i had was i i suppose 70 to 80 percent of the time i was running with somebody in a in a race that we'd either organized or it was a, a kind of a major marathon you know mm. um the other times it was me on my own um so i suppose it was overall about 50 50 Okay. um the the actual official official marathons um that were organized and you know like tens of thousands of people take part very very few of those and i kind of did that on purpose because just look using europe as an example um i'd done nearly all of the the big marathons in europe and i didn't really want to go and do them again i wanted to see somewhere i'd not been so rather than going to paris i'd go to nice for example mm-hmm. because i've been to paris a lot and so, so i wanted to make the trip as kind of immersive and as new as i could so where can people go to see a list of where you ran all the countries and you guys have something published yet? Yes, we do actually. Um, I'm glad you said that because I've worked hard for the last week to get that ready. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, my website is the best place and it's just been revamped. Um, it's called nickbutter.com, nickbutter.com. And from there, you can click on the running the world 196 tab and you can see all of the, st- the statistics. You can see the itinerary um, and it will also it should link to Strava. Um, and then from there, it goes to Strava and you can see all of my all of my routes, how slow I ran, the hills I ran. And you'll see the times. It's very obvious, actually, when I ran with lots of I know, school kids or something and we've had to stop to keep like you know, catching people up or whatever. So, yeah, all the routes are on there and the whole itinerary from, you know, from country one all the way through to country 196 are on there. And I suppose excitingly soon we'll have some previews of the documentary to show everybody um, and they'll have a little snippets of of the kind of the itinerary and how the how the map looks yeah oh that's exciting and you said that you're going to be working on a book as well yeah three actually um, which i didn't an- <laughs> yeah. i know i didn't anticipate um i was very fortunate that penguin publishers um arranged to deal with me before i left to say look you know if, if you manage to do this then it's going to be an incredible story oh, and i said and sure. um, you know having penguin is a real honor and so that book is uh, available actually to pre-order right now even though i haven't finished it it's available to pre-order on amazon um and there's links through my website nickbutter.com uh, or you can just search running the world on, on amazon but the book will be out probably between April and May 2020, and the documentary will be out a year later. So the documentary, I've just had some meetings with them, and that will be really exciting to to show people the you know the reality of life on the road. Because you know I can talk to you for an hour or so now, but the reality is you know 674 days living out of a bag and having like four pairs of pants, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know you get to see the behind the scenes. <laughs> so you finished up in Athens at the Athens Marathon, which is poetic for yep. you know marathoners and it looks like kevin the runner with cancer who originally inspired you was there and ran it with you so can you kind of take us to that moment oh wow yeah i love talking about this moment because when i dreamt this trip up it was i met kevin when i was running out in the sahara desert running um, the famous marathon to sub uh, mds race i met him there and a few weeks later I'd, I'd come to him with this plan of what i wanted to do and the reality is, he said, look, I'm probably not going to be alive by the time you even start the trip, let alone by the time you finish it. Because wow. um, he was given two years to, to live. And I said, well, regardless of what's happening, Kevin, I, I, I want you to promise me you'll, you'll, you'll be alive. And he said, well, I'd love to, but reality, I can't really. You know, he, he, he desperately wanted to promise me that he'd be there at the finish. Mm. Um, and I hope to some extent we kind of kept him going. And, you know, he's been very fortunate with some experimental drugs um and now what's the day's date he is now five years and 21 days since his diagnosis um and crossing that finish line was so so special because i mean we laughed we cried we giggled during the run we just spent the whole run chatting about the life that he's had and i've done a couple of i did a couple of videos with him while running and he was just describing what it's like to live with with prostate cancer um and we it, we certainly had a few tears then um and yeah. since we've been kind of whatsapping and chatting every day but running that that last one with him and seeing him fit enough to do it where he should have been dead three years earlier is is just it's just remarkable so i hope that whether whether he's alive or not alive he will 
kind of live through me and I'll be able to, to tell everybody the message that he gave me, which is ultimately don't wait for a diagnosis. Don't wait for something to happen in your life to follow your dreams. You've got to do it now because you don't know what tomorrow is. Um, and yeah. I have certainly realized that tomorrow isn't a guarantee. And through running, I have found that, you know, I've, I've really turned what I love to do into a job that earns me a little bit of money and I can go out and share the message. And so I've now got all the way between now and the end of 2020 to share share my journey with kids in schools, in bookshops, in theatres. And I'm even coming over to the US in uh, the end of January to go and do a few other bits of uh, podcasts and interviews and some, some tours over there. So, um, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm sure you're just the takeaway is that everything can be figured out. I mean, just everything you've been through physically, emotionally, mentally, you probably just have such confidence that no matter what the future holds that, you know, you can figure things out. Yeah, that's true. And that's a big message that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to tell kids is that if you really want something, you go after it and you don't give up. But actually, the biggest takeaway is that I've learned that it's not about the finish or it's not about the trip. It's about the whole journey. And the last few years of my life have been exceptional because even those horrible planning stages where I've been, you know, spent weeks and months speaking to sponsors and invariably getting a no. Um, actually, I look back and go, well, we got some yeses and we managed to get this trip done, you know. And so it, it was just enjoy the journey and whatever you'd love to do. If you're not doing it today, then you're wasting your time. I, I don't want people to just sell their homes and sell their cars and, and quit working and go and run around the world. Although I think that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> I, I realize that it's not reality for lots of people. You know, they've got lives. But even if it's just that one extra bedtime story with your kids or whether it's cycling into work rather than, than getting in the car or just sharing the car journey with somebody um, and maybe picking up that hitchhiker or, you know, they're just the little stuff that kind of enriches your life more and trying to give yourself more opportunities. So I've certainly had my eyes open by this trip and I don't think I'll be running around the world again, but never say never. Um, but I've got lots of, uh, lots of stuff coming up. That I hope I will continue to, to kind of build on the, the, the belief that I have. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. This has been amazing. Yeah. Anybody out there listening who's nervous about signing up for their first marathon or their first ultra, just think of Nick. He ran a marathon in every country in the world. <laughs> just go for it. You know, that's you right. can do it. Yeah. I know. I'm very grateful for you uh, to take the time to interview me because um, I, I like sharing the journey and hopefully your, your listeners will be inspired and they can yeah go and enjoy running and kind of think of me in hot, sweaty places and, and not particularly enjoying <laughs> it when they're out having a great time. <laughs> perfect all right so awesome to talk to you nick appreciate it thank you so much take care and uh, keep in touch all right hope you enjoyed the conversation with nick butter definitely check him out online and uh, yeah just so glad that we got him on the podcast that's right i can't think of many feats more epic <laughs> than running a marathon in every country in the world I was wondering when it was going to happen because there have been people who've been trying to work on this, like Dean Carnazes. So yeah, so awesome. Well, in just a minute, we want to share some tips on running in the cold weather because we know a lot of you out there are experiencing uh, pretty cold temps this time of year. Before we do that, we'd like to give a big word of thanks to our episode sponsor, Athletic Greens. We appreciate Athletic Greens being a sponsor. They're the maker of the ultimate daily all-in-one health drink that has 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. And we've been taking Athletic Greens for quite some time. I love to take it first thing in the morning. It gives me that boost of energy to start my day right. And I love to take it as I travel as well because sometimes you don't feel your best when you're traveling because of maybe your sleep schedule or not quite eating the way you normally like to eat. So the travel packs are amazing. And we've actually been hearing from some listeners who have started taking Athletic Greens. Ellen posted this on our Facebook page. She says, thanks to you guys, I signed up for Athletic Greens and have been taking it for about three weeks now. I notice a huge difference, mostly in my brain. It's totally cleared the fog that I used to fight almost daily. Amazing. And what's also cool, it actually tastes good for a green drink. I remember for years we had green drinks that didn't taste too good. <laughs> That's right. You kind of choke them down. Yeah, this one is different. It gives you a full spectrum of prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, superfoods, and so much more. It helps support your body's nutritional needs across areas like health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal and neural support, of course, healthy aging. So if you're wanting to get in on all this goodness... 
you can get 20 free travel packs with your first order if you go over to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. That's 20 free travel packs with your first purchase at athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. And we'd also like to thank Bombas Socks for sponsoring this episode. I'm actually wearing a pair of Bombas Socks right now. If you're like me, you have a sock drawer that's full of socks. Probably like half of them you don't even wear. You just (laughs) always go for the best ones. And that's Bombas Socks for me. So if you're still wearing the same old uncomfortable socks, definitely upgrade. Angie, what do you like about Bombas Socks? I love the fact that they have extra cushioning. So you feel like you're getting a nice supportive sock that's very comfortable. They have um, the special built-in arch system. Kind of feels like a nice hug for your foot. They're nice and smooth across the top. They don't have that annoying toe seam. They don't bunch up. And they have socks for any type of activity that you want to do. Of course, performance running socks for working out. They've got great hiking socks. They've got great dress socks. So go over to bombas.com slash MTA today. You can get 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MTA. Bombas.com slash MTA. All right. So a lot of people this time of year are dealing with cold temps. It's probably caused a lot of runners to get on the old treadmill. Yeah, that's right. But a lot of people don't have access to a treadmill. And so it's either run outside or don't run at all. It's important to have kind of like an arsenal of things to help make those cold weather runs more enjoyable, more safe, so you can get your miles in and get as much uh, fresh air and sunshine as you can. Because I think that really makes the winter months seem less grueling. If you're able to get out there Stick with your your running routine and just kind of feel like a badass when you're out there running in the cold, inclement weather. So the first thing is to make sure that you're healthy. Cold air can cause problems for some people if you struggle with asthma, bronchitis. Obviously, if you have pneumonia, you shouldn't be running out in the cold. You should be resting. (laughs) Or if you have any kind of chest pain, it can be aggravated by cold, frigid air. Um, So if you have a chest cold... The frosty air may delay your healing, and it can cause violent bouts of coughing. So that would be a time where you probably need an extra rest day. Maybe you need to be inside doing some low-impact, gentle cross-training, or even taking an easy treadmill day. So just be careful. Um, Trevor and I are both getting over colds right now, (laughs) and I've been doing a little bit more treadmill running just because the cold air has kind of been, you know, aggravating my bronchial passages a bit more than normal. So, you know, make sure you're healthy before you head out, especially in super cold conditions. And before you go out, check the temperature. If the wind is blowing, it's not going to feel like the temperature that's actually registering on your thermometer. So you want to look at what the temperature plus the wind chill is going to be because that's what it's going to feel like on your exposed flesh or your body. So we have quite a few listeners in Canada, and some of them we've got to meet in person. One runner is named Mike Irwin. He lives way up in Fort Nelson, B.C., and we actually saw him on our way to Alaska. I'm like, Mike, what are you doing living way up here? (laughs) He's literally a Zamboni driver. He's got the best job in Canada, right? (laughs) That's right. And he's not shy about running outside in the winter. I mean, he he layers up. He's got it down to a science. But, you know, regularly it gets to negative 30 Celsius or below. And, you know, he's out there getting in his miles. So so I asked him for some tips because, you know, he, he lives this. Um, and he said, the biggest thing to know is your body and how you regulate heat because we're all different. If you live in a warm climate and you're going to be somewhere cold for the holidays and want to run, it only takes a few adjustments. For your torso, dress in thin layers with a good sweat wicking layer first. A winter running jacket or a shell is a must. How many layers you put in between depends on the temperature. A toque, or in the U.S., a beanie, is a must. Below minus 10 Celsius, I wear a balaclava as well. I have a pair of lined winter running tights. If you don't, just layer your regular tights. As for socks, I wear regular compression socks. I wear my regular running shoes or a trail shoe if running in fresh snow. As for gloves, I'll take two pairs with me, a thicker pair when I start out, and if my hands warm up, I'll switch to a lighter pair. Now, the last two things, water will freeze, so be hydrated when you start out. Running in the cold can dehydrate you just like in the heat. If you do take water, be aware it will freeze depending on the temperature and the length of your run. 
And finally, if you're cold when you start out, you're dressed right. When you're running, monitor how much you're sweating. If you start sweating right away, it's almost guaranteed that you're overdressed. I'll pay attention to my pace and effort to make sure I don't overly sweat. Here's an important fact. If you sweat and start to get cold during your run, stop right away. In the winter, I run close to home and do multiple laps in case this happens. And then Mike says, enjoy your winter, everyone. So I thought those were some really great tips because, you know, some of those things that like, yeah, you don't want to be sweating right away uh, because then you're, you're probably chill, especially if you start running into the wind and you can get hypothermia. Joe lives up in Wisconsin. You actually met up with her in in San Antonio. She says, my yak tracks are always a great go-to. The bonus thing about winter is you don't have to get up super early to run because the warmest part of the day is usually in the afternoon. She says, and I don't know about others, but sometimes pace has to go out the window. You can't run your usual pace on snow and ice, etc. You have to be so much more careful when turning around corners not to slip. So yeah, that's a great point too, is that if it's icy or snowy out, you just can't be heading out for speed work and expect to just be racing around like you normally do. And of course, depending on how cold the weather is, um, if if you're dealing with cold rain, you want to make sure that you wear a brimmed hat to keep that out of your eyes and have some kind of water resistant outer shell that you can wear because, you know, cold rain can really kind of soak through and, and be pretty miserable and chilling as well. And speaking of hats, we do have some extras left over from the MTA virtual half. A lot of people said they signed up for the race just to get the hat that we did this year. It's all about the swag. So if you want a cool trucker style trail runner hat, we do have some left over and you can buy one now on our website. So head over to marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash hat to get one of the hats that we have left while supplies last. Once again, that's marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash hat. So Angie, thank you for sharing some tips on cold weather running. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. So until next time, you guys are awesome. Remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Go away.